This is a podcast from 3RRR 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Good morning and welcome to Radiotherapy. Guess what? The sun has set on another AFL Grand Final and now risen an hour early, apparently, on another season of Daylight Saving. So apparently there's some other finals going on, but ha, who cares? I'm Dr Doolittle and I'm celebrating. But not because of the AFL. I'm celebrating because it's Daylight Savings. I love Daylight Savings. I love it to death. And we've planned a big show to kick off the longer days and darker mornings. Joining us in the studio this morning is Rachel Borza. Rachel is the CEO of WIRE, which stands for the Women's Information and Referral Exchange. I hope I got that right this time. I got it wrong practising in the uh, green room a few minutes ago. Rachel is going to tell us about WIRE and we're going to tackle the nasty issue of stalking. What is it? Why do people do it? What measures can you take to protect yourself from stalkers? We also have in the studio our young roving reporter, Master Doyle. He has some interesting thoughts on preparing for the various summer athletic pursuits like fun runs. What are the health concerns and what should you do to prepare? Also with us is Eva Green. Now, as many of you will know, Eva is the product of a secret science experiment where the genes of a psychologist were spliced with the genes of a climate campaigner. <laughs> and she's in to tell us about the mental health effects of daylight savings. And finally, Dr Capri is sitting there ready at the mic. Capri is our practising GP and medical school lecturer and she's brought with her this morning an interesting topic. Capri is going to explore self-disclosure in medical practice. How much personal information should we share with our patients? Should we be a blank slate, a best friend, or something in between? So, sit back, relax, or lie down and bask in the sun, because it is pretty sunny out there. Keep the dial jammed to 102.7 and enjoy the show. Who's going to say hello first? Eva. Me. Yay. How are you? (laughs) I'm fantastic. How are you? Do you feel brighter when it is sunny like this? Do you reckon, I mean, you're the psychologist in the group, you know, what do you reckon? Absolutely. Love the longer days. Just love it. But uh, I I was a bit worried about this morning. I was wondering if my smartphone was going to be smart enough to actually turn turn back the time. I know. I was freaking out because, you know, half the clocks in the house do it by themselves and half the clocks um, require me to still help them. It's like, you know, half of the children are growing up and half aren't. It's so unfair. But I looked at, you know, you wake up and you look out the window and that sun is shining and Mm. even though you had to get up an hour earlier, you felt good. Rachel, how are you? I'm very well. I'm happy I made it here on time as well. I know. I was saying before, I was going to text you to remind you because I thought, oh, you know, Sunday morning and I was out last night and hardly anyone seemed to know it was daylight savings. And so I was thinking, okay, I'm texting everyone, but then I was so disorganised myself I didn't get around to it. But we're all here. here we mm-hmm. Thanks for coming in, Rachel. Especially my so bright and early. Capri? Yes. What's your news, Capri? Uh, I got here on time too. Did so you struggle? Did no, you struggle? I didn't. No, I got up extra early. And you come from almost a different state, don't yeah, you? One of the Bayside the other side suburbs. Of the Arrow, which yeah. is yeah, just like another world. That much you have to get a visa to cross the Arrow? <laughs> oh, like you apply a day in advance? How does it work? I've never tried. I've never tried. I'm going to one day. Yeah. Well, you you, you wouldn't qualify to live on the other side of the Arrow, Steve. No, absolutely no. not. <laughs> they would take one look at my bank account, which is rule <laughs> number right. one, and say, "Who are you kidding? Yeah, Who are you right. kidding, buddy? You just back, don't qualify. Back you go, Doyle." Well, I do live on that side of the Arrow Doolittle, so... Yeah, um, you look like you do too. You just look like a smart, rich young man. Well, thank God none of the uh, <laughs> the radiotherapy listeners have ever seen me, because otherwise I'd be an easy target, I suppose. And I can just make up whatever you look like. I mean, that suit you're wearing, that three-piece suit with the <laughs> tie and the thing, the things, and, you know, yeah. Yeah, and your BMW keys dangling yeah. off your um, belt. <laughs> yeah. Well, I've got to say, I'm loving the Las Vegas candy girl look you're going for today, Doolittle. <laughs> <laughs> 
I go for that every day. Top, so certainly yeah. topped your Dolly Parton from last time I was here. Yeah. So, um, and you know, putting on the makeup just kills me each morning. That's yeah. why I was in such a rush. Yeah, well, you had um, one less extra hour to do it today, didn't you? Oh so no, but what do you quite, think? Quite um, <laughs> impressive in that time. Hey, you're going to start the. Should have, should have been at the Brownlow uh, last Monday. Oh, I was. You, you would have. Uh... Didn't you see me on the red carpet? I was oh, with actually. Chris Judd. Oh, oh okay. you know, yeah, in the red dress, oh, long. Oh, yeah. yeah, went right down to my ankles. Yeah. <laughs> Bit of a departure from your uh, old Collingwood supporting, but yeah. I know. Now, we better get down to business before people ring up and go mad at us for crapping on for too long. <laughs> hey, um, Master Doyle, you are going to start the ball rolling with some info about preparing for a summer of sporting pursuits. Yes, that's right, Doolittle. As you mentioned um, just before in your wonderful intro, uh, now that the weather's getting a bit better and uh, there's pretty much, like, a fun run or a exercise event on every weekend from now on in Victoria somewhere. Uh, it's a good time to start uh, training up for it if you're interested in that sort of thing, if you're looking to get fit. Um, I mean, it's also fun to do it if you're, you're running for a cause, like running for charity, or if you're doing it with a group of people, like your family or friends. Uh, but what I want to talk about today is a bit different to that. It's the, the uh, less talked about medical angle to fun runs, mm-hmm. which uh, is... Uh, the health issues that um, people might not know they have, they're not aware of or haven't been treated for, this is pre-existing yep. conditions, uh, which if they start doing fun runs or if um, they don't prepare with them in mind, yep. uh, they might be at risk of uh, really uncover. making those conditions mm. worse. Now, uh, an example comes from October 2013 uh, when the Australian Medical Association had to develop new safety guidelines for fun run participants uh, in response to the death of two participants in Perth's city to surf in August of that year. Yep. So uh, the two were um, Geoffrey On, a dentist who died in hospital from a suspected heart attack soon after finishing the 12-kilometre run, and um, a 58-year-old lawyer who collapsed soon after finishing his first attempt at a half marathon. So... Um, these new guidelines. And we do know. We do say, know. I mean, because I've covered this many times, but the, I've covered the issue of are fun, are marathons and fun runs dangerous to your health? And the gist of the message is always, um, the long-term benefits at a population level are better if people go through, but the actual race themselves increases your chances of heart problems in particular. Yeah, absolutely. And so, uh, in response to uh, these tragedies, uh, the basic suggestion of the new guidelines, which you can get at uh, Better Health dotfig.gov.au yep. is that um, if you're uh, getting sharp pains or dizziness as you're training or running, yep. that is your body telling you that you need to slow down or not take it as serious, or not take it as hard. Rather, take it seriously. Obviously, ah, <laughs> I can get little spots in my eyes, so I, ca- I can't see properly. I get my I generally get yeah. little you know holes where I, I can't see, in particular in my central vision. Yeah. I'm looking across at you as I say this, Capri, because you're the GP, <laughs> and I'm wanting you, and I'm wanting a free consult whilst we're here this morning. Drama queen. Medicare card. Do you have Medicare? Dr. Capri, Medicare's everyone. Everyone, go to her clinic. She doesn't charge anything else. (laughs) Sorry, um, Doyle. No, no, that's that's absolutely fine. Um, But, yeah, so another recommendation is that uh, people see their GP if they're not regular exercisers and uh, they're planning on doing a fun run. Right, yeah, Um, surprise, surprise. The AMA says go and give some money to doctors. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, Okay, I get that one. They say that that's that's rule number one for everything. Are you about to watch TV? Go and see a doctor first. Yeah. Although there are actually specific people. It's not the entire population they're trying to, so who, to get money off. Yeah, it's so a good question. Who so should go if, to their doctor? So if you're overweight, yep. that's one. If you're over 40, uh-huh. is another. Um, well, that obviously doesn't apply to me. Yeah, no, no, not at all. <laughs> yeah, um, way and, under 40. Um, also, if you have a history of um, family illness or chronic illness, yep. or even just if you haven't exercised in a long time, uh, 
your body yep. won't be quite ready. And um, it's a good idea to get a medical perspective on how you should build up, how quickly the sort of exercise you should be doing, whether it's just running or cross-training, yep. that kind of thing. I mean, if you haven't run before and you're preparing for an event, you're going to be in line for a couple of common industry injuries, rather, yep. which is like um, muscle pains or joint pains or uh, chest tightness. That's basically your body... Uh, reacquainting itself with uh, regular activity. So, I, but, I reckon um, that is by far the commonest reason yeah. that I see people don't make it back. So they decide they want to um, do a fun run. They maybe haven't done one for somewhere between two and five years. And they remember when they last used to do fun runs, they mostly ran about 15 to 30 minutes for training and three times a week leading up. So they pop on their runners and out they run for 15 to 30 minutes. And then after two weeks, they've got either ankle or knee problems. Yep. And they don't realise it's because they haven't built up, you know. When, whenever I take even a small break, like six weeks, when I restart, I run two minutes, walk two minutes, run two minutes, I do a maximum 10 minutes for the, and do it three times and build up by about two minutes a week over the first four weeks. I just think it's crazy otherwise. You get too many injuries. I'm so, sensing a book is going to be published on this, yeah. Dr. Doolittle's Fun yeah. Run Adventures. Yeah. And Do- we- Doyle and Doolittle's Fun Run Adventures. He does all the writing. I'll put maybe my picture on the front. The and- and yeah. where, where is the fun in this? At what point? At, at what point is Are the fun questioning- in the fun run? Like how many kilometres would have... When do you feel it's fun? I honestly <laughs> look. I know. I agree. Non people who don't do them—that's the commonest thing they say. It is utter, utter bullshit. They are not good fun. I reckon that's some of the. I love them. I absolutely is love it them. The challenge of them? no, it's the training. It's the most peaceful yeah, time dolphins. of the day. You go, I don't put music on. Some people like music. Personally, I just like going out blank and that's why i especially like bike riding because that's, that's yeah that's, i know because that's my natural state that's your, that's usual but bike riding is even better like i only cycle by myself don't go in a group and after about a half an hour you know it's just so peaceful because it's just you and the wind in your ears and and running it i love the scenery running you know run by the river and stuff like that i i just don't get why people don't love it well, I'm thinking the fun ones are the ones that sound like the colour ones where they throw colour on you or the, the runs in the dark. Like, there's a bit of a novelty factor. Yeah, you're to a the, gimmick. To the, you're a gimmick. You're just not happy with the term fun. Well, well I guess I'm concerned about, like, the extent of running, you know, that is our body actually equipped to be running such long distances with all these knee problems and hip problems? Capri, and, well, I was. Oh, oh, wait a second. No, Doyle's got an answer. I was actually uh, speaking to a personal trainer from Lilydale about this for an article two weeks ago uh eva and the the way to make sure that fun runs are fun is that you train up so like often there'll there'll be different distances obviously so if you want to make sure you have fun to start with maybe go for a a five kilometer one rather than a half marathon but if you if you basically ease your way into it uh not only do you actually have fun on the day and all the positive endorphins uh, are what you feel instead of short of breath all the time but you also get a sense of achievement at the end of it Mm. i mean uh I'm, I'm not a regular runner myself, even though I live south of the era. Uh, Surprising. But, um, I thought all you people ran in Lycra. But it was, it was a very and you compelling wear Lycra argument. you when you go and yeah. get coffee too, I've noticed. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Outrageous. Uh, but, um, yeah, so, but it is a compelling argument, and I think, I think that's um, for those reasons it's why Doolittle finds uh, exercise so much fun and um, why other people might too. I don't actually always like the events themselves, but the events are like the target that gets you through the training. Mm. And so sometimes the events are great. You feel fantastic at the end. Mm. You really feel on a high when you're finished. But the actual events themselves, there's a lot of lining up and queuing and, Mm. you know, the toilets are just so abysmal at these fun runs that it's not funny. Sometimes there's a queue of about 30 people, you know, and it's a wall of them because, you know, they're all those those 
dismountable, portable toilets, oh. and they're just abysmal. So there's certain Where's, aspects that aren't fun. Where's Kenny you. when you need them? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> That's how we got famous. Yeah. Any take-home messages? Oh, sorry, Capri, you have something. No, I just wanted to ask, ba- ask you, Doodle, what sort of um, symptoms or what would... Um, encourage you to go and see a GP before going on some kind of fun run. Have you ever done that? No, but I start so slow, I figure I'm doing essentially a stress test by starting slow. Um, yes. But I go to, but what, one thing I do do, the moment I get a musculoskeletal problem that's new, I go to a physio yes. just to get it checked out. Just to, And nine times out of ten, they say, ah, it's just overuse, rest, rest, and then go back slowly. Um, but every once in a while, they've picked something up and fixed something that, you know, yes. is, is odd and, you know, had to do something. So I always go to the physio quick. But I totally agree with Master Doyle. I think if you have an exit, look, more than five years, if you haven't done any of this sort of stuff, I think it would be wise. Um, mainly, though, if yeah, you've got some sort of basic, one of the big risk factors, like you're a smoker, you've got known to have high blood pressure, you're overweight, um, or you know some problem like that, I'd probably go along and say, hey, listen, do I need to worry? Because... You know, mind you, if you do the training slowly, I think it's going to uncover any problems in a safe manner. But I certainly wouldn't want to increase the the um, amount of training I did rapidly unless I knew I was okay if I had any of those risk factors. Because in, in my experience in general practice, not many people do go to see their GP in prep, as part of their preparation or uh, before they go into fun runs. It's just not a common thing. What do you do when they do come? What are the main things you check? Well, making sure they don't have any of those cardiovascular risk factors and mainly that they won't be um, more likely to have a sudden death type thing happen on a fun run because that's really why the AMA responded yep. in that way. Do you do an ECG? And do you do an electrocardiogram? Well, you take a really good history. Yep. I'm going to be the... the, uh, the Responsible one. Lecturer yeah. now, but uh, a good history will usually um, um, expose people who are predisposed to having a sudden death type thing, particularly if you've got a family history of premature or sudden death. And young yep. people can actually be as as likely to have a sudden death as an older person. So mm. this idea over 40 going and seeing your doctor in preparation, if you've had a family history of any cardiac um, sudden death, then you know e- even as a young person, you might have one of those genetic predispositions for having a, an arrhythmic type yep. sudden death. And so, then you do an ECG, and that's an normally ECG. pretty predictive yeah, if there's anything yeah, you need to worry about. Is, if you've got right. a normally ECG, you're normally pretty safe. Pretty good, yeah. Hey, um, interesting and great stuff, Doyle. Thanks for uh, that. Any um, parting comments? Uh, no, I think uh, you and Capri have pretty much uh, said everything Stolen that I would have wanted to, ha, which ha, is, ha. Um, yeah, it's probably a good idea to get checked out um, just to make sure you don't have any of those medical conditions that you could make worse by uh, exercising. But, yeah, at the end of the day, uh, it's a great thing to do and you get a happy rush as a result of it. So um, bring on summer. Mm. Bring on summer. Hey, um, Doyle, thanks for coming in. You're listening to a podcast from Community Radio 3 RRR in Melbourne, Australia. Eva Green has just told me, stop misintroducing my topic, you <laughs> idiot doolittle. Um, you're listening to us um, go on and on and on. And who have we got on the panel? I'm checking. We've got Dr Capri over, here, over there. We've got Rachel Borza from um, Wire. And we're going to talk to Rachel in depth after this segment all about stalking and Wire. But until then, what are you talking about, Eva? Why am I so dopey this morning? Well, look, because we're all big fans of sleep. And so given it's daylight savings and we're springing into spring, uh, I really just wanted 
wanted to, um, I guess, touch base because I know when I lose a little bit of sleep, uh, it really does have an impact on me. Things happen. Strange things happen, like I'll be riding my bike and feeling the, the wind in my hair and all of a sudden realise I've forgotten to put on my helmet or I'll get to work and I've forgotten my lunch. Are we all relating to this? <laughs> the other day I went for a swim at my pool and I was tired and no instead, no, get this, no, well, instead of putting on my speedos, I went out in my jocks. I thought oh. I had my speedos on and I went out in my jocks and I was with a mate, I was with one of our uh, mutual friend, in fact, and when we're in the pool, he says, hey, you speedos? And I looked down and I've got my little Kelvin Klein on my jocks. Oh, how embarrassing. I walked from the change room all the way across. Oh, anyway, sorry, I've so derailed this, you. This, this segment's completely for you, do little. Absolutely. So, so, I mean, there's these, these funny scenarios, but is there a more serious side to this losing one hour sleep? Because we know that with the loss of one hour, there's about a 10% decrease of sleep efficiency as well. So is, how, is this, how is this impacting us? And dare I say, in the risk of sounding a little bit dramatic, as we spring into spring, are we springing into a public health oh. emergency? Oh. What's dun, dun, going dun, dun, on? Uh, so thankfully the Finns have been all over this. Oh, I love the, the Finns. Finns have done a lot of studies on sleep and um, actually they collected hospital data for 15 years between 1987 and 2003 for the two-week transitions pre and post-daylight savings. Oh. Yep. Uh, and they were collecting data on accidents because they predicted that because of the impact of the loss of sleep has on our cognition and attention, that maybe there are more accidents happening. Uh, and they also focused on uh, mental health in respect to uh, manic episodes, mm. given how important disrupted sleep is for mm. increasing uh, episodes of mania. Uh, and they found... Nothing. No significant oh, effects. No, no significant effects. So, 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 so this is good news. This is great news. I, yeah. I mean, I on the one I just hand... imagine though this dinner table in Finland where the dads, you know, sitting around with the mum, they're probably husband and wife scientists, and the kids are saying, so you've been working for 15 years on this study, <laughs> mum and dad. You know, you've not come to any of our school plays. You've not watched us do fun runs. Um... How did the study go? Tell us. Tell us. The sacrifice, <laughs> mum and dad. How did this... Well, it's a negative finding, but it's very good news. Very good news. Because everyone loves a negative finding. <laughs> there are trends, That was finished, that Look, accent. That, 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 was a, that was a fantastic Finnish accent. <laughs> Uh, I mean, the, the hiccups were that there's a very low prevalence of mania in Finland to begin with, so <laughs> <laughs> slight, slight problem there. And, no, and the that second... reminds me of my Viet... I've got this Vietnamese friend, Doctor, who came to work in Australia and he was a world expert on felciparin malaria um, in um, Thailand, I think it was he came from. I forget where, it might have been Vietnam. And he comes and he's studying here and he says to me, I've come to Australia. No felciparin <laughs> You know, they've studied mania in Finland. <laughs> You've got to get the country right. Exactly, exactly. They should come come to Australia. But normally the biggest precipitant of a manic episode is lack of sleep. So, you know, the the, sort of the golden saying's always been if you want to be a a bipolar or mania researcher, open up a clinic next to an airport because it's jet lag is one of the big things. Exactly. And and also, I mean, a lot of people with bipolar disorder are on medication and such minor sleep disruptions would be buffered by that medication. And especially in a place like Finland where they've got an amazing medical system and, you know, it's Mm. all free and all that sort of Mm. stuff. 
stuff. So, you know, people will have free access to Medicaid. There'll be a lot of people who are treated. Mm. For those people, though, driving this morning, there, there is a mm. slight caution because they did find a trend in an increase in accidents in the spring transition. So... Mm. Spring Eyes on the back. road, people. Yep. Um, so I, I guess I love sleep, so I thought this is just a good opportunity to appreciate appreciate sleep. Mm-hmm. And um, we know that even just prioritising sleep can increase our efficiency of sleep yep. without making any of those sleep hygiene changes. Mm-hmm. Um, but also it's just an opportunity to, I guess, remind people when they're going to bed tonight, perhaps if they're going to work tomorrow and might be a little bit more tired, monday is plus losing an hour of sleep, uh, just to decrease screen time, 30 minutes before mm. bedtime, to decrease light pollution and to just uh, relax our way into Monday. Do you think, how long do you reckon it takes from daylight savings to get your sleep pattern back to normal? It doesn't take long. No, a couple of weeks? No, not oh, even, a couple of days. <laughs> right. Yeah couple yeah. of days and also there's so many benefits of having the extended daylights in the afternoon increased vitamin d so mm. great for our energy bones mm. um and increased activity levels so do you reckon though when daylight savings first comes because you know you're so excited you do stay up an hour later you know because it's not getting dark mm. now till an hour later mm. so you tend to mm. and yet you still have to get up the same time for work well, and, and it's good that we have to get up earlier as well because we know that that decreases our REM, the, the part of our sleep that is associated with depression very slightly. Yep. So and the early bird that, does catch yeah, the worm. And the fact <laughs> that the extra sunlight um, fades your curtains quicker. Exactly. Doesn't, yeah, it's no. just you can cop that. <laughs> <laughs> the old daylight savings. I, lo- I do love it. You know what, though? I think, you know, going back to Master Doyle and the exercise, it really is the time. You know, it always reminds me, when daylight savings comes, that is the time to start preparing for summer. So it's when you lift your training up, you go on your diet to, you know, cut backs for the summer sporting events and all that sort of stuff, and it's just such an exciting time. And when we have, like, a record hot day for grand final day, the day before... 30 whatever degrees yesterday it yep. almost feels like summer doesn't it Absolutely. even though we've still got a while to go well, i did want to ask did they show any positive benefit as far as mood they didn't go into that level of detail no right. yeah right okay because it does make you i don't know i feel good when but i was thinking about that yeah. driving in when i was misunderstanding um what eva's topic was and i was thinking about the psychological benefits of daylight savings i was thinking about the fact that we do on average have slightly less depression and people are brighter in summer mm. you know and that's the basis mm. of a lot of people believing that winter has a whole lot of effects on mood as well as the specific yeah. seasonal affective Sad. disorder where some people yeah. are prone are particularly prone even people who aren't prone you know often describe that they feel down but it's hard to know because in winter we tend to work harder we do longer hours there's less holidays there's less breaks certainly in Australia at least so I don't know if you reversed it into other countries like Europe and so see if it's the same effect Mm. who knows Mm -hmm. you're listening to a podcast from community radio 3 R in Melbourne Australia our special guest, as I shuffle my papers and find my introduction, I hear it is, um, is Rachel Borzer, the CEO of WIRE, which, as I said earlier, stands for the Women's Information Referral Exchange. And they're a Victoria-wide free generalist information support and referral service run by women for women. They've been listening and giving voice to women's experiences for a long time, since 1984, just two years after that In Excess song came out. It's probably what inspired them. Every year they have over 12,000 requests for information and assistance. They have a support service, a drop-in 
Australian Women's Information Centre. They do a whole lot of stuff via online chat and email. They're a fantastic group. I read their website. I'm so impressed and we wanted um, someone to come in and we got their top person, <laughs> Rachel. Thanks for coming in, Rachel. Yeah, my pleasure. Hey, and we're specifically going to, we're going to, we'll get on to wire a little bit, but we're going to particularly talk about stalking this morning as well. Um, you know, such a, I don't know, I was trying to, I actually described it, I think, in my intro as something silly like, you know, what did I say? I said it was a nasty issue. I sat there trying to think of how to describe it. A heinous, I, I couldn't, you know, tell us a little bit about stalking, but get this, paint, paint a picture maybe. Oh, look, it's, yeah, it's it's for the women that go through it, and it is primarily women that experience it. Um, it's, it's hugely disruptive uh, emotionally and in so many ways. Um, and it's really, it's, it's pretty simple. It's just about um, repeated, persistent and unwanted attention, unwanted contact. That's what, that's what it boils down to. And, you know, the, fu- the commonest question, because I've been talking about this for a few weeks now, saying, you know, we're going to have mm. someone talking about stalking. And, and the commonest question people say is, what's the difference between someone who's just lovesick following a relationship ending mm. and someone who's stalking? Mm. That's what, a lo- you know, if someone said to me, you know, a really nice woman said to me, oh, come on, come on, do a little, even of done a few drive who doesn't do a few drive casts after a relationship breaks up yeah. and stuff who doesn't and when does it become stalking and you know and that's the same response around the group which is yeah. what sort of got me thinking too how hor- you know why i couldn't describe the topic because on the one yeah. hand a lot of people think harmless yet we know how yeah. non-harmless yeah. it is and how scary it is yeah. if you go through how do you tell the difference i think a lot of it boils down to how the subject is made to feel Yep. Um, if if someone's just driving past your house and you don't know about it, then you don't know about it. But if someone's parked outside your house repeatedly and you see them or they're texting you or emailing you and just won't take no for an answer, you feel fear. And that's what the behaviour is designed to make you feel. Mm. And the, the people I've spoken to, you know, who have had some, you know, experience of this say one of the worst things is questioning yourself mm, because you don't, you're yes. questioning yourself yes. the same way people at dinner parties question yep. the process, yep. only at the same time you're scared yep. and you start wondering. Oh, look, absolutely. And, and women often feel that they're to blame, often mm. feel that something that they've done has caused that behaviour or something they haven't done. Uh, and they really, they feel... Uh, fear and shame they feel it's their fault they feel guilt um yeah and and embarrassment as well i think often if it's if it's a a failed relationship if it's a relationship that's ended um it's really difficult and they may have common friends and it's really difficult for them to share that the behavior is inappropriate and frightening for them is there a way that you just raised this one for me i haven't thought through but is there a way to break up with someone to decrease the risks i assume it's even if it is it's a tiny factor because the stalking behaviour is in the other person, not in you. But is you know, is there any research to say you know if you break up in really clear, simple ways? And I, I'm assuming yeah. not. Look, n- not that I'm aware of. I mean, I'd, I'd say two things. First of all, yes, absolutely, it's it's the other person's choice about how they choose you know to take that breakup, regardless of how you break up with them or how the relationship ends. Um, but also that it is, if you feel that you're being stalked, it is really important. Um, you don't engage with the stalker, but to give one clear message mm. to say one once and really clearly, this is not welcome. This needs to stop. Yeah, mm. that would be incredibly hard, though, because yeah. I bet yeah. you know anyone who's a stalker was probably one message ain't going to cut it, is it? Look, but if you keep yeah. giving messages, when are you exactly? And and often often any kind of attention from 
the subject for, for, for a stalker. Any kind of attention is good yeah. attention. That's what they Positive want. Positive or negative. Yep, exactly. Can you tell us a bit about the different types of stalkers? Yeah, look, there, there's been a bit of a bit of research done uh, about the different types and they've got, um, there's five different names. Um, the common one that people think of is the rejected stalker. So it's what we're talking about when a relationship ends and somebody doesn't accept that it's end and ended and it's really about still about control there. They're still trying to control the ex, trying to control that person. Um, the, the celebrity stalker, the intimacy seeker, who is often uh, delusional and thinks that they have a relationship where none really exists. And that's the one that gets all the publicity yeah. which is really quite rare in real terms, mm. isn't it? Yeah, yeah, look, it is. Compared um, to, like, relationships, you know, there'd be yeah. thousands of people who were relationship stalking. Exactly. Although it is interesting to note that most stalkers or, or most, most victims of stalking know their know the person that's stalking them. It's not yep. normally a stranger. Yep. Um, there's the incompetent suitor, who is somebody who uh, thinks that they can establish a relationship by this kind of behaviour. Um, and they, they think that if they keep just contacting you enough that, you know, you will eventually agree to go out with them and that a relationship will, will start. Um, a resentful stalker, which might not be... Um, a, following on from a, a romantic attachment or any romantic um, sort of perspective, but yep. it might be something like um, somebody got the job that they thought they were entitled mm-hmm. to at work. Yeah. Right. The ones I've heard of that are, are, are disgruntled work co-workers. Yeah. I've seen yeah, that a couple exactly. of times. And not normally necessarily opposite sex. And no. One guy stalking another guy yep. and some sort of revenge to make his life crappy because yep. he yep. feels that he you know, missed out on something that he should have got. Yeah, exactly. Mm. Um, and then the, the last type, which is actually probably the least common, is that stranger, the, the predatory stalker. Mm. They're the ones That's preparing scary. for some yeah. sort of attack. You yeah. know, so whether yeah. you call it yeah, some sort of grooming process yeah. Or not grooming so much, mm. but yeah, that's a super kind of scary one. Levels of awareness of within the different categories of stalkers, like, do they, are they aware of their behaviour? Is there a kind of a purpose or a um, yeah, look, conscious intention behind all of them, or is there some that are? I think um, I think for all I think for all of them, it, it really is all about control. It's, it's about that they want to exert some kind of power over the subject. They want that person to feel a certain way. Um, mm. Generally, they want that person to feel fearful, um, but they may want that person to feel affection for mm. them. But it's, yeah, it's, it's generally about power. And is that, I guess, digging a bit deeper because mm. they don't have any other skills or, or passageway to obtain the needs that, you know that need for power yeah they can't obtain that any other way look I, I guess um, I guess every case is is different in the sort of in the class about the incompetent suitor that's generally um, someone who doesn't have the social skills to, to get a partner in a, in a conventional way but really at the end of the day you know violence and the, and stalking is a form of violence mm. stalking is a crime mm. and mm. at the end of the day you know violence is a choice. Mm-hmm. Is, is a choice that they make. Rachel, if someone ring, um, rings your service and they um, feel they're being stalked, mm-hmm. what sort of advice do you give them? Okay, look, the, the first thing is if they feel they're in immediate danger, we tell them to contact the police sure. straight away. Um, but the, there's a few important things. Um, one is, what I mentioned earlier, to give one clear message to say that the behaviour is unwelcome and needs to stop. Um, it's also really important to collect evidence because if it does progress mm. to going to the police, the police are going to want evidence. So to keep um, to keep notes about um, things that happen when you see the person, to take screenshots, um, if it's messages online, some, things like that, um, printing out um, emails, uh, anything like that. So 
collecting that evidence is really important. Mm. And if it's gone on, if the stalking's gone on for more than two weeks, which comes back um, to Doodle's point about when is, is it just, you know, not taking rejection well and when does it become stalking? Um, if it goes on for more than two weeks, that's um, a risk factor that it, that it could potentially turn mm. violent. So that, that two-week um, threshold is, is significant. And has the internet made it so much more prevalent? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, I mean, it's... As you say, it used to be, I mean, I know when I was a teenager, I used to drive past, <laughs> you know, you drive past someone's house, but now it's, you know, 24 hours a day and women, mm. in, and, and it is, I, I guess I say, I talk about women being the subjects and, and men being the perpetrators because it is generally a gendered mm. crime. Um, it's not to say that it doesn't happen the other way around. Um, but it, but it's generally women that are the subject. And women these days, everyone, has their phone with them all the time. And you can be, you know, get text messages mm. all the time. Not to mention all the Facebook stalking and that Absolutely. sort of stuff, which Absolutely. is so easy to do. When do you re- when, what are the tips around when someone should contact the police? Fundamentally, if they feel unsafe, if, if they are frightened... Mm. Um, and certainly if it's gone on for more than two weeks. So, and also if there's a history, um, so say if it is following on from a relationship, if there was violence in that relationship, um, because we know that the most, uh, the time a woman's most at risk is when she's leaving or has just left a relationship. Um, so, yeah. So having a lower threshold in yeah. that situation. Yeah, I think so. And what kind of response would we expect from the police? Um, look, it's, it's definitely improving. Um, having the evidence is really going to help you. If you've got, if you can go to the police and say, this is what's happened and, and this is why I'm fearful, then that really makes it easier um, for the police because the next step is it's getting an intervention order out against the person. I spoke to, I rang the police to ask them what their thoughts were on how people should do that at some time ago for a different story. And, they, and one of the people there, and I think some people from your organisation too, Rachel, gave me some really good tips. They said if, you go, if you're thinking of ringing the police, probably ring wire first and mm. talk it through. Mm. Then second up, don't front up at the police station cold. Ring mm. them up first. Mm. Tell them you're coming in to discuss a, um, a stalking incident and it's, you know, got... Um, probably mention the words domestic violence because mm-hmm. it raises alarm bells for them. All police are now trained. Mm-hmm. But if you go in there with an appointment, someone's going to sit down with you, not busy in between things. You're not just going to get whatever duty person and they've effectively become like your case manager. Most people go in to discuss it with police before they want to take out an intervention order. Mm-hmm. So they go in the first time to say, you know, I've spoken with Wire, I've collected this evidence, here's my manila folder, here's some emails, here's this. Mm-hmm. What are your mm-hmm. thoughts, Mr yeah. or Mrs Policewoman or Miss Policewoman? Mm-hmm. What should I do and then they've got a baseline for when something happens they've got an officer who they know and then they can ring up mm. hey um i didn't want to get too stuck on that because i really want to ask you also about an issue that's been um in the news a bit lately which i mm. think ties in is revenge porn mm. there's you know there's um the, hasn't the government called for submissions at the moment yeah absolutely there's um there's a some a bill that's going to be brought before federal parliament fairly soon i think i hope um to make revenge porn a crime right. so it's and it's uh, so when we say revenge porn we're talking about sharing uh, images or recordings of a sexual nature against uh, someone's or without someone's consent consent and with the intent to again make them them fearful um, and it's also not just sharing the, those images but it's also threatening to share them because that's right. quite common yes. um yeah that idea of if you don't go out with me, whatever, if you don't do what I want you to do, then I'm going to share these images that you sent me 
because they may have been shared, originally shared with consent, then I'm going to share these images with your family or your friends. Like a form of blackmail. Really. Absolutely. Mm-hmm. Yes. Although, because I, that's, I mean, it's interesting that it's not a crime already. I mean, it's just the law catching up with the internet, I'm yes. assuming, it, and modern technologies. It, it kind of is. It's sort of, uh, it's implied there's a, um, there is a, a crime about using a carriage service to harass or something like that, but it's it's going to make it really explicit and really clear that mm. that revenge porn is is going to be a crime. Because I think people also don't realise stalking's very clearly a crime mm. too. They know that it fits under stuff, but you know the, this that's what happened with stalking legislation sometimes mm. time ago when they basically rearranged it just to make it very clear that it's mm. an um, it, you know they defined it in the law. It's got a ten year maximum sentence, etc. Yep. etc. Et with all these parts. Pathways. Uh, and I think that's, you know, I think the community is sometimes a little, well, when I say the community myself, I was a little un- unaware of, you know, just how well some of these issues are addressed in law. Mm. It doesn't necessarily make it easier because real life is much more complex Grier. than, yes. yeah, much yeah. grayer. Uh, God, it's, a, it's such an interesting area, difficult area. Tell us a little bit about WIRE too because we should, um, we should uh, hear more about WIRE. Mm. Yeah, sure. Um, look, WIRE... I'm biased, but WIRE is a great organisation. It's a great service. Um, We We agree, by the way. (laughs) We were talking about it earlier. Um, WIRE's... pretty unique actually because we're um, the state's only free general support service so WIRE's remit is we provide information support and referral to any woman in Victoria on any issue Um, because there's a lot of specialist services around but it's really difficult to know if a woman has a particular problem to know what services are appropriate where she can go where she can start and just to be able to talk something through and to find out how to take the next step. And when you say any issue, mm-hmm. you're yep. not joking. Like nope. it, there is, you couldn't think of anything that um, WIRE couldn't help a woman with. And I'm, I'm surprised I've never heard of this uh, organisation, particularly yeah, as a right. GP who sees mm-hmm. a lot of women. So, yeah, it's a great service and I think you, your publicity mm-hmm. unit needs to be a bit... Are you yes, knocking them, are you? No, 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 no. We're, we're, working, on it. we're working on it. I'm surprised I've never heard of them. Yeah. And, um, you know, I'm really into women's health, so... Absolutely. Because and you do a lot of advocacy as well, as yeah, well we as do. all the face-to-face yeah, we stuff do. and the telephone stuff and the online yep. stuff. It's, it's an amazing service. Hey, um, thanks so much for coming in and telling us about that stuff. You're going to stick around for the last segment, which is um, Dr Capri talking about how much personal information you should disclose as a clinician. But um, thank you, Rachel Balzer from WIRE. Three... And now it's Dr Capri's turn to tell us a little bit about how much you should disclose about yourself in some sort of clinical situation, whether you're a doctor, nurse, psychologist, OT, whatever. Well, that's right, Doodle. So this was prompted by a study, uh, well, actually just a literature review by New Zealand Group, who were trying to establish what the role um, of self-disclosure was um, as a communications tool by health practitioners. And what we mean by self-disclosure is what you said, is um, how much information do you reveal about your own life and experiences to patients um, during a consultation? Um, And there's lots of different types, and they run through their their list of uh, types of um, self-disclosure 
like reassurance, counselling, rapport building, just casual, conversive types, intimate types, and then the extended narrative, which is the least useful, um, where you just sort of ramble on about your own life and it's got of no, no relevance to that's, the patient. That's the Dolly Parton <laughs> from that movie. Um, I forget the movie, but where she says to someone, okay, enough talking about me, let's talk about you. What do you think of me? Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So clearly that's not a good form of self-disclosure because it's of no benefit to the patient, which I think is probably... Um, where you draw the line as far as how much you should disclose and what you should disclose, as long as it's benefiting the patient. However, um, it is really common, and I am definitely a proponent of it, and I hope I use it um, judiciously and wisely and to the patient's benefit. But as a GP, when you're in, often in a um, long-term relationship with a patient, it's really hard not to have that that sort of self-disclosure as part of the rapport-building uh, relationship between your patients. It's really difficult not to engage on that level. And sometimes it is just casual conversive. Uh, for example, there's no doubt this week people will come in and want to talk about the grand final. And it's mm. of no relevance to the, what they present, their presenting problem is, but it is part of the rapport-building and relationship that we have. And, and patients, I think, would feel... Um, less well served and, and, and feel less um, engaged with the doctor if they don't have the opportunity to, to um, experience the doctor on that more humanistic level. It's hard, especially when they ask you direct questions. So sometimes the um, personal sharing is volunteered by the clinician, mm. you know, like the clinician will, the, will be treating someone for an infection or whatever and say, look, I've had this one myself and the antibiotics were pretty easy to take, but make sure you take them for the whole course. You know, they'll mm. throw it in like that as a compliance, you know, sh look at me. But a lot of it, it's the patient wanting to get to know you a little bit. So, And the hard thing is, they often start with easy, easy questions. Like they'll often say something like, oh, what team do you barrack for, Dr Doodle? And you go, I barrack for Colin. We're like any sensible person in this country. And, but then, and they say, oh, and by the way, you're married, you've got kids. And that's exactly. when it starts to feel uncomfortable mm. and it gets, you know, I don't think any pe people, person would have much of a problem in a general setting, not in a psychotherapy setting, I should say, but in a general medical setting saying something like, I barrack for Collingwood, um, whereas they'll start to get a little bit nervous. Oh, you're asking me, why do you want to know if I'm married and I've got kids? Yeah, so they did talk about what kind of things are um, most health practitioners happy to talk about or feel comfortable with and experiences about... Um, physical uh, type of um, their kind of physical responses or, or treatments they've undergone like physiotherapy, things that aren't very personal, certainly they're comfortable with parenting experience, apparently paediatricians are most most likely to self-disclose about um, <laughs> parenting and, and behaviour problems with their children That didn't um, surprise me at all actually no, exactly. and I'll, tell you, I'll tell you why especially because one of the things this paper didn't address I didn't think very well at all, in fact I could hardly find a sentence, mind you I only speed read it um, was the risks in particular the risks being boundary violations mm -hmm. so the biggest precipitant of doctors or clinicians who have a personal sexual romantic relationship with their patient is boundary is starting off sharing personal information which then stands, extends to let's have a coffee mm. and then extends yes. to you know oh you're the only doctor who's ever understood me oh you're such a special patient let's go and have dinner and we'll talk more etc etc mm. and that's the big risk and in and I, Eva I'm interested in your mm. thoughts on this particularly because in psychotherapy mm. that's what that. you know mm. we're taught you know this you know, it is the it is the thin end of the wedge mm. share your football team and you'll be in bed tomorrow no I'm <laughs> exaggerating but um, you know what I mean <laughs> yeah slight exaggeration there but, yeah. but it is I mean we're um, I guess raised in our training around uh, to prioritise professional boundaries mm. and to um, 
be mindful of the goal of self-disclosure. So always um, examining our own motivations for when we self-disclose. And it, it is very much going to vary on the person that you're working with as well as to what you'll disclose and when you'll disclose. Yes. But always in the back of your mind, you're considering, is this in the welfare of the client or is it meeting my psychological needs somehow? Or, you know, why am I doing this? And, um, you know, what what kind of context am I disclosing in and and what is the goal of that and and so I think you know a lot of the paper was talking about using self-disclosure to build rapport and to um, encourage empathy and I think there's other ways to build rapport and encourage empathy uh, that don't involve necessarily self-disclosure around what you do when you've got um, children with so-and-so because people what do you mean by other ways? Give us an um, example. Yeah. I think just in terms of being able to, to, connect, to connect with someone in an authentic manner, it doesn't involve necessarily having to share whether you're married or single. So, for example, it, you know, instead of saying, you know, um, oh, yeah, I know it's really bad um, going through that infection because I went through it too and I took the antibiotics. Instead, you'd say exactly. something along the lines of, gee, it must be tough going through this infection exactly. and wondering about the treatments. How are yeah. you feeling? And, you know, how are you yeah. coping with that? yeah. Yeah, well, I mean, I'm interested in in those in the fact that you're trained to um, actually acknowledge your own motivation and to really make sure that you're using it appropriately, whereas we're not trained in that at all, which mm. is a point the paper made. Can I just um, also go back? And that's why the paediatricians do, do it more, because they're not at risk of boundary violations. They've got uh, kids, okay, yeah. and so they don't have to worry about, you know, something going on, you know, because it's their little kids, and, and so it's more, and it's more just sharing with kids who don't understand this stuff, and so... So, you know, by saying stuff like, yeah, here's a picture of my daughter on the on the desk, mm. um, you know, makes but the kids more But often pediatricians deal with the parents, though. I True. mean, there's that, mm. that opportunity yeah, to, so to the have there. that boundary violation yeah. with the parents. And, and there might be other, other ways to normal Because the function of sharing what you might do as a parent is to perhaps normalise or to perhaps role model. Mm. And there might be other ways to do that. You know, in mental health, we might, for instance, show videos of um, people talking about recovery as a way of um, sharing different life stories of how people approach mental health recovery. So mm. I think that there's always going to be such a variety that what one parent does with their children... I think it's a potential to kind of connect, but there's also the potential to disconnect as well if you don't relate to the, the paediatrician's story, for instance. Yeah. Look, I, I sort of sat down and thought, yeah, I just need to, ha to think about this as far as my own practice and, and build a little checklist for myself. Yep. And I only came up with one thing, really. It's a good um, checklist. Which I know, which I thought was good because, you know, I lack you don't need You don't need a pencil that's sharp for that. But <laughs> <laughs> no. really, as long as you fulfil the, you know, the Hippocratic Oath is first do no harm and as long as you are mindful that as long as it is not, it is beneficial somehow in the relationship and it's for the patient's, the, a good outcome for the patient, then I think... I think as far as general practice goes, and I understand the difference with being in, in the other sort of psychotherapy type situation, that patients actually feel like you're, they're part of a, a, um, a partnership more mm. if you do engage on that level. And they actually mm. feel like they're part of the caring carer as well in that relationship. Because if, like recently I had um, a, a, my father die recently and my patients knew about that and it was really important to them to be able to engage with me on that. Mm. And I think that to to take that away from the certainly that kind of general practice 
um, scenario, I don't think that does benefit the patient because then immediately you're kind of on a different level mm. and it's almost like putting that big desk up in front of you like we used to have in the old days where the patient was on that side and the doctor's on this and side. And traditionally the family doctor is a family doctor. Yeah, They're part of the family. They've seen them. They often are, you know, get invited to the weddings. They get invited to everything. They are an important part of the family. Exactly. To get overly academic and just say boundary violations can't in general practice and paediatrics in those areas I think is is not right. However, I was surprised reading this paper about the lack of research and the lack of clear guidance that we all sort of wing it and we learn from experience. I was surprised at that. I thought there'd be more specific training in general practice and paediatrics mm. around that. Hey, um, Dr Capri, thank mm. you for bringing in such an interesting topic. No this is my wind-up voice, by the way, Rachel, in case you're wondering why, <laughs> why I've all of a sudden gone all the time. This is my wind-up voice. I look at the clock. We've got about... 40 seconds because um, Dr. Dr. Shane gets mighty mad if I don't finish on time. <laughs> hey, thanks everyone for listening to Radiotherapy. Thank you, Rachel um, Borza, for coming in from Wire. Everyone jump on the website. It's on our um, Facebook page, Radiotherapy Triple R. Thanks, Dr. Capri, for daylight savings us up to date and all that sort of stuff. We're going to hand you over to the scientists um, who, um, as you know, we love like brothers. Don't forget to call Wire if you need to, 1300-134-130. And as I say, I'm going to put a link up on our Facebook page. This has been a podcast from Free Triple R, 102.7 FM in Melbourne. Truly independent community radio. Want to hear more? Check out our website at rrr.org.au.